Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sammy Rhodes, and I'm the uh, RUF campus minister here at USC. And I am filling in for John Pauling this morning, who I think last I heard, his wife is in labor. So keep them in mind and pray for them um, as they have their fourth, fourth baby. Uh, also, before I forget, uh, if you are a college student or you love college students, we are doing our kickoff event next Tuesday. We're doing a barbecue and bluegrass uh, just down from Capstone at Columbia Evangelical. We would love for you to come. Lots of free bluegrass, lots of free barbecue, lots of free friendship, lots of free, hopefully fun. So come on down. We'd love for you to join us for that. The text I want to look at this morning is from Psalm 32, or is Psalm 32. And uh, it's one of what Luther called the Pauline Psalms, Psalms that uh, get to the heart of the gospel, get to the heart of sin and repentance and faith and what Jesus has done. And um, it's a psalm, too, that we need to know comes out of, it's from David, and it comes out of one of the more broken, one of the most broken situations in David's life with Bathsheba. So it's a psalm of repentance and of confession. And so let's read it together. Psalm 32. Here's what David writes. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my son. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let me pray for us, and I want to dive in. Let's pray first. Our Lord, we, do th- we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm. Lord, we thank you that uh, in your word, through this psalm, you reveal yourself to us, what you're like in all of your ways, in all of your glory, in all of your beauty. But, Lord, you also, in painful ways, often reveal ourselves to us, what we're like. And, Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace this morning to be with David in understanding ourselves and our own brokenness and our own sinfulness and our own wickedness. Lord, would you meet us in this place and give us the paradox of your gospel that says we are so unworthy and yet we are so loved. And Lord, would you meet us in this place, meet us in this space and time, meet us where we are in our lives, and would you um, minister to us through your word. We pray these things, Lord Christ, through your name. Amen. One of my most dreaded questions ever is to be at a party or some kind of gathering and someone does the thing, no doubt it's happened to you, what are your hobbies? And for me... (laughs) It's always a weird, because I, I feel like I don't really have hobbies other than I like to eat food and I like to watch TV. And uh, those are a, a be- beautiful hobbies for an introvert. Sad, maybe, if you're more like a hiking or something like that. More power to you. Uh, but for me, so I'm always looking for the next kind of show to watch. And so recently, uh, I found this show called Fleabag. Critically acclaimed, kind of a little bit overlooked last year, a British show. 
It's about a girl who's living in London, single, struggling, trying to make her way in a, both career-wise, but also reeling from a loss, a tragic kind of traumatic loss of one of her best friends, also processing the loss of her mom, while at the same time juggling a dad who is incredibly self-centered, newly married, and has a lot of money, but doesn't really want anything to do with her. And so in the, first, the thing that hooked me is in the first episode, she's um, kind of moving from addiction to addiction. She's struggling with money. In this moment of desperation, 2 o'clock in the morning, she goes to her dad's door. She knocks till he opens. And in this really, it's funny. I mean, the, the whole show is very, very dark, but it's also very, very funny. And in this really dark but funny moment, she says something that stunned me. Here's what she said to her dad. She says, I have a horrible feeling that I'm a greedy, perverted, selfish, apathetic, cynical, depraved, morally bankrupt woman who can't even call herself a feminist. And what I love about that is she is getting at something that I think we all carry with us, a profound sense of guilt, a profound sense of sometimes for us hatred of ourselves. It's what when uh, one of the founding fathers of psychiatry had that famous line where he was talking about forgiveness and the way that we all carry guilt around. Carl Menninger, he said this, if I could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. This psalm is about the guilt and the shame, whatever words we want to use, that we carry about, that sin has done to us and that we have participated willingly in. A little bit of context about Psalm 32. I know that most of us probably know if you've grown up in the church that Psalm 32, like I said earlier, it was flowing out of David's incredibly broken uh, awful situation with Bathsheba, where the kind of thing that I said this morning that, that Veggie Tales could not capture the brokenness of it. It's what you know the rated R parts of Scripture that we kind of are sometimes don't know what to do with. You, you wouldn't find an episode in Adventures and Odyssey about David and Bathsheba because there's it's so horrific, it's so tragic, it's so bad to use that word. And I want you to see that David, he's not writing sort of the best-selling prequel to Ragamuffin Gospel in Psalm 32, as beautiful a book as that is. What I want you to see is that David in Psalm 32 is a deeply broken man who has done shameful, unspeakable things. And he is going through this, trying to breathe his way through this, and he is seeking the Lord in the midst of it. I want you to see that this is God meeting David in a really broken situation and thank the Lord he meets him with real grace and mercy. So there are two movements that I want to cover. We're really going to stay in the first two verses of the psalm because there's so much there for us. But the two movements that I want to cover are first, there's this admission of guilt from David. And then second, there's this assurance of grace and mercy and forgiveness from God. Those are the two movements, the admission of guilt of David's sin, and then secondly, the assurance of God's grace and forgiveness. The thing that I love about Psalm 32 is David, in his native tongue, takes every word he can find to describe himself before the Lord. Four words to describe his sinfulness. Four words to describe his wrongness, his brokenness. And here's, here they are. Let's go through them one by one. Here's the first one he uses. He takes to himself before the Lord. It's that word transgression. Literally, it means willful or deliberate rebellion. So Isaiah 1-2, the Lord says this about his people, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The way that I like to think about this in my life is, think about the worst thing you've ever done toward your parents. Mine is pretty memorable. Uh, I've shared before here that my part of my story, part of how I became a Christian, is my dad, when I was in middle school, got uh, addicted to crack cocaine in a really tragic way. It's a long story. But my mom kind of threw the pain of the divorce and the abandonment 
found Jesus, and she also found counseling. And so she was really keen on getting me into both things, youth group and counseling. And I refused. As a 12, angry, sad 12-year-old who just wanted to listen to music and stay in his room and sleep, a depressed 12-year-old me wanted nothing to do with it. So time after time, she would say, Sammy, let's go see, my, let's go see this counselor. And I'd be like, no. And she would just come back. Let's go see this counselor. And I would be like, no. And then finally, there's this one moment where she came, and she was like, we are going to see the counselor. Get in the car with me. We're going now. And I said, no. And then I reached in my closet for a baseball bat, and I held up the bat to my mom, and I said, I'm not going anywhere. And my mom burst into tears, ran out of the room. I sort of burst into tears not knowing what was happening, this anger and sadness inside of me. But when I think about that moment, it's a small picture. It's what David is saying. It's a small picture of the rebelliousness that we've had toward our father. The, the, the way that we have held up the baseball bat in our hearts and said, God, no, I am going my way. You can do your thing, but I'm going to do my thing regardless of what you do. Just try me. There's a defiance, a rebelliousness, and David is saying, that's in me. This is in me. And he keeps going. The second word he takes to himself is that word sin. Again, literally, it means to miss the mark or to fall short. So if you grew up in uh, a, good, a good Baptist home or even just a good like evangelical world, you know the Romans' road of salvation. And so you know Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. And I love that idea of falling short. Because here's what David is saying in that. He's saying, basically, I was not the king, the leader that I should have been. I was not the husband that I should have been. I was not the father that I should have been. I was not the friend that I should have been. I was not, you know, the believer that I should have been. I was not what I should be. I am not what I should be. When I, when I think about that, I can't help but relate. That I, when I think about myself, what I am, I am not the husband that I should be. I am not the father that I should be. I am not the brother that I should be. I'm not the son that I should be. I'm not the campus minister that I should be. I'm not the friend that I should be. And we could keep going, and the same is true. If, you're, if you know yourself, the same is true for you too. David is inviting you to know yourself. He's saying, this is part of what I am. I am not what I should be. And then he keeps going. The third word he takes to himself is that word, look at verse 2, iniquity. Again, literally it means to be twisted or bent out of shape. So again, uh, what scripture says of this idea, Ezekiel sixteen forty nine. God says about his people, he says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And when you and I look at that, we could say that's messed up. That they were self, so self-centered that they didn't have a heart for the poor. They didn't have a heart for the broken in their midst. They were so wrapped up in themselves. And David is saying, that's me. I have been so wrapped up in myself that I haven't even seen other people. I love, there's a, I'm reading this new book by Iris Murdoch, who's an Irish writer I've just really fallen in love with. But she's got this great line where she says, love is the difficult realization that something and someone other than yourself is real. And David is saying, I have missed that. I have been so selfish and self-centered, I've missed that. Uh, I'm a C.S. Lewis nerd. I guess we are. Can you be a Christian and like, not try to quote C.S. Lewis at some point in your life? You, you can. Definitely you can. But uh, Narnia is my real jam, but I got real into, I tried to get into the Space Trilogy. 
And I think it's in the first one. There's a scene somewhere in there. For those of you who've read, you can come and correct me afterwards. But there's a scene in there where uh, these two men who've gone to this planet to try to basically pillage its resources, take them back to Earth, and get rich. And there's this scene in there where Yarsa, who's sort of like sort of a Christ figure, not not as good as Aslan, if you will, but definitely in you know in the same ballpark. And he gathers these men before this whole meeting of people to confront them. And in this beautiful way, I've always loved the way that Lewis says it. Yarsa is looking at these men and their greed. And he has this great line where he says, there is a bentness in the human race. And I love that because I think about, again, Luther saying, he has this thought where he says, instead of, what that means is, instead of being curved outward in love to God and love to neighbor, you and I, what sin has done in us and to us is we are curved inward in ourselves. Where I can say to my kids and about my kids that we all have this superpower. And that superpower is, X-Men notwithstanding, our superpower is we have the ability to make everything about ourselves. I sometimes feel like I'm the master of self-pity. Like I can take any situation and bring it back about me and make it about me. And David is saying, that's exactly what I do. I am so self-centered, Lord. I am so full of myself. And then he keeps going. The fourth word he takes to himself is that word deceit. We could say it simply means duplicity, dishonesty, or pretense. Again, in Scripture, Psalm 101.7 says this, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Part of what David is saying, I love the way one pastor says, this is always the way sin works, isn't it? Sin always overpromises and underdelivers, doesn't it? It always holds something out that seems life-giving, and then when it takes root or it takes form in our lives, it's always life Stealing. Uh, I love the way I, I re, I'm a big Breaking Bad fan, and there's this recent interview I read with Vince Gilligan talking about the idea of Breaking Bad, which is taking Walter White, if you've seen the show, this when you meet him, this sort of innocent, friendly chemistry high school teacher, and showing slowly how he morphs from this, an, this protagonist into an antagonist, this man that you just think doesn't deserve to live anymore. It's a fascinating show. But he's talking about Walter and what makes Walter so evil. And here's what he says. He says, I don't think he's an evil man, but he's an extremely self-deluded man. We always say in the writer's room, if Walter White has a true superpower, it's not his knowledge of chemistry or his intellect. It's his ability to lie to himself. He is the world's greatest liar. He could lie to the Pope. He could lie to Mother Teresa. He certainly could lie to his family. And he can lie to himself. And he can make these lies stick. And I think part of what David is saying is, I have bought my own lies. Not just the lies of the serpent, but the lies that I've been selling myself, the lies that I've been believing. Another way to say this is David uses these four words in his native tongue. And he's using these four words really to say one thing about himself. He's using them to say, Lord, I am a desperately, hopelessly lost sinner with no ground with no ground to stand on, with nothing in my hands to offer. I am so deeply broken that unless you do something, I am completely, completely lost. It's it's an incredible admission. It's an incredible confession to say, this is who I am. This is me. Uh, It makes me think of one of my favorite scenes in Les Mis is when Valjean sings, Who Am I? you know the story of Les Mis, where Valjean's experience, he's a hardened criminal in his past. He, he tries to steal the candlesticks, and he experiences grace for the first time from that priest. 
and it really does change him. You know, and he goes and he kind of reforms his life and he builds this new life, new identity, distances himself from the name Jean Valjean as far as he can. But then there's Javert, who I so relate to, the older brother, right, who can't, he, he lives to catch Valjean. Joy in life is found in catching people doing something wrong. Some of us can relate to that. And he finally finds this man he thinks is Valjean and he takes him to court. And the real Valjean hears about it and he has this internal wrestling match with himself, really with the Lord. And here's how it goes. Um, He says this, Who am I? Can I conceal myself forevermore? Pretend I'm not the man I was before? Must my name until I die be no more than an alibi? Must I lie? How can I ever face my fellow men? How can I ever face myself again? My soul belongs to God. I know I made that bargain long ago. He gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to carry on. This is what I love. If you've seen the movie or the play, this is where he starts to unbutton his shirt. And you're like, what is he doing? He's, he's at the court, and he starts to unbutton his shirt. It's a really uncomfortable scene. And as he unbuttons, he says, he gave me strength to carry on. Who am I? And he starts to unbutton. I am Jean Valjean. Who am I? And it reveals he unbuttons his shirt to show the prison numbers. Two, four, six, oh, one. This is the only tattoo that I've ever wanted. <laughs> but you know how sometimes you know yourself? You're like, I don't think I have the body for a tattoo. <laughs> Not the chest area. I got some, if I did some, like, pump some iron, maybe. Um, but I still might get it because I love it. Because he's, what is he saying? He's saying, this is who I am. This is my past. This is, it's, it's not just part of me. It is me. And, of course, we know we're going to get to the next part where it isn't me. But he's saying, this is who I am. And this is exactly what David is doing. He has, he's having the courage to go before the Lord in all of his sinfulness, in all of his brokenness, and say, Lord, this is what I've done. This is who I am. And this is what I love about Psalm 32 is this is the starting place. Like if you don't, if this has never been an experience of your life, you've missed the gospel. Like, there is no good news unless you get to this place, unless you are humbled and brought to the end of yourself at some level to admit the sinfulness that has ruled your life and the sin that has ruled your life, the ways you've been enslaved, the ways you've been addicted, the things that you've done that you want no one to know. This is the the birthplace of the gospel in real space and time. This is the place where unless you are brought like David to the end of yourself, Jesus will never be sweet to you. Unless you are brought to this humbled place, you will never begin to sing, like seeing amazing grace with tears in your eyes. It just is not going to happen. And so the beautiful thing about Psalm 32, though, is David takes these four words to himself. But the beautiful thing about Psalm 32 is that God has four words, too. And God's four words are truer and better and greater than David's four words. So let's look at them briefly together. Here's the first. He forgives his transgression. Literally, it means to remove or to carry it away. Again, Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does the Lord remove our transgressions from us. In other words, thank the Lord that Jesus isn't the kind of spouse that I am. I'm the kind of spouse that love, that can take the tiniest grudge just even just like the, the smallest feeling of passive aggression and hold on to it and work that thing. And yet David is saying, Lord, you're not like that. You don't hold our sins over us. You remove them. You carry them away. He keeps going to God covers David's sin. 
simply, and we know what that means, simply to conceal or to provide for, to cover over. I love the image that we get through Micah in Micah 7 where he says about the Lord, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I always think about this is a little bit weird, but just bear with me. I always think about I'm from Sumter, grew up in Sumter, South Carolina, and love driving the back road, Screaming Eagle Road, if you're familiar. And uh, I love Screaming Eagle because the cops are scarce and you can go as fast as your conscience allows, which for me is actually not that fast. Um, <laughs> but still, uh, it's a little, you know, unless you get stuck behind a truck, it's a great way to go. The only downfall is there is a landfill. And it's the kind of landfill, if you've ever been by it, where it doesn't matter if you switch your AC from like fresh air to recycled air, it just seeps into your car. And But when I think about that landfill, when I pass it, it's a weird thought, I know, but I think about how there's just tons and tons and tons of just waste and trash and garbage, and it's just covered over, right? Just completely covered. But it's not so covered where you can't smell it. And so every time I pass it, I have this weird thought where I think about that place where Paul is talking about us, and he's talking about not just how Jesus, the blood of Jesus, covers our sin, but he has that weird place where he says, but now... In Christ, he has covered our sin in such a way that we now have the aroma of Jesus. That's the sweet smell of grace that he so covered our sin that just all the scent that's left is the sweet smell of grace. But then there's another word. Third, he uh, he does not count our iniquity. In other words, he doesn't keep a record of it. Again, Psalm 133, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, I was thinking about this. I shared this with the earlier service. I was wrestling with the way that I wanted to say this is that God doesn't keep score. And then I thought, ah, that might sound cheesy or like I'm not sure that's theologically accurate. So I was like, let's scrap that. But here's what I was thinking just to give you a little insight. I was thinking about how that idea of not keeping score, like when I go to my son's Little League things and they don't keep score, it drives me crazy, right? Like I'm like, this is not the real world. Like people keep score in the real world. And then I started thinking, like, is there something there for me? Like, why is it, and whether literally aside, why is it that we seem, all of us, to constantly be keeping score with each other, right? Like, I, I don't know if you're like me, but I do the comparison thing almost nonstop every day. Uh, when I think about just even starting REF this year, I look at Instagram pictures and I see other groups that seem to be having more success, and I compare myself against it, Right? Or I do the thing where I look at a small group that seems like, oh, please, I could do that in my sleep, right? I have the pride swell up and be like, oh, I'm a better campus minister than they are, right? I mean, you're not campus ministers, but you have your own version of that. And there's a part of us that does like to keep a record. There's a part of us that does like to keep score, but I think part of what David is realizing is that's not the way that God relates to him that God relates to him purely on the basis of free grace, purely on this inviting, rich relationship that David could never in any way earn. Then he also, fourthly, last word, he gives David a right spirit, a spirit of honesty and a spirit of humility. Psalm 51, this is what David prays for, right? He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And the Lord answers that prayer, which is how we have Psalm 32. He answers that prayer in a way where David begins to know himself as a sinner and trust God as the greater Savior. This is four things. Again, if David had four words to say one thing that he's a sinner, God has four words to say one thing, and it's this. 
that his grace is always greater than your sin. I love the way that Charles Wesley used to write it. He would say there is there is infinitely more grace in the Lord Jesus than there is sin in you. It's the way that John Newton on his deathbed say, I remember two things. I'm an old and blind man. Do you remember this? And he says, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner, but that Christ is a greater Savior. And David is giving us this beautiful picture of God's grace in that way in Psalm 32. But the the more beautiful thing for us is David knows what God is like, right? Psalm 32 is about David knowing and trusting that somehow in the brokenness and sinfulness and wickedness of his situation, God is meeting him there with forgiveness and mercy. He knows what God is like. But you and I get to see what God will do. That, that, that we get to see that David's true and greater son, Jesus, is going to bring those words we just said to this beautiful fulfillment. Think about it with me for a second. David didn't get to see the way that Jesus carried our sins away by carrying them to the cross. David didn't get to see fully, you get to, not on earth, the way that, that Jesus covered our sin with his blood, spilled at the cross, shed at the cross. David didn't get to see the way that Jesus counted his life for our life, the life that you and I could never live, and he counted his death for our death, the death that you and I deserve to die. And David didn't get to see the way once ascended Jesus was going to send his spirit to give us a right spirit, to send his spirit to, to awaken us to our sinfulness and to awaken us to the grace that he came to bring. I'll close with this. The way that I think about Psalm 32, I think about this scene. And my favorite, Taylor Swift is bringing about the 90s in a way. Uh, this is my favorite 90s movie of all time. It's the movie Babe. Some of you may have seen it. And so just a spoiler alert if you haven't. So basically, Farmer Hoggett raises sheepdogs. They go to the county fair and win top prize every year. This one year, tragically, his main sheepdog injures itself, and they don't know what to do. So along comes this little pig, babe, and he's like, I want to train. I don't remember how this goes exactly, so just bear with me. But he's like, I want to train basically to be the winning sheepdog. In this, in this weird way, he starts communicating with the dog and learning all the tricks, and he goes... But here's the existential crisis moment. Babe, his uh, duck starts whispering in Babe's ear and says, basically, Babe, it doesn't matter if you win the top prize. All you're ever going to be is ham at Thanksgiving. And so Babe has this existential crisis, and he runs away, gets caught in this huge storm, almost dies. Farmer Hoggett goes after him, brings him back, and this is where it gets real weird and real beautiful. So Farmer Hoggett's with him. He cleans him up. He starts you know, feeding him, nursing him back to health. And then that's weird enough. And then it gets weirder. He starts to sing over him. And then it gets even weirder. He starts to dance this like Irish jig. If you ever seen, this is truly worth If you've never seen this, it's truly worth Googling. Um, and the part of the scene that I love is as this is happening, Farmer Hoggett is singing and dancing over Babe. All the other farm animals are crowded around the window of his house. Why? Because what kind of a farmer sings over a pig? And every time I watch that, I'm like, tears. And my kids are like, Dad, you're so weird. <laughs> I'm like, guys, I'm a pastor. And so uh, because what kind of a God sings over sinners? That's what David literally says. You surround me, the me that just confessed unbelievably awful stuff. 
and yet you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And there's this strange parable. This is joy, guys. This is where joy is found. And, and, and admitting the guilt of who we are. But then at the same time, that's where you can almost hear God shouting with joy, yes, this is where the Christian life begins. And, does, and this is where the Christian life ends. Over and over again, confessing and admitting the truth of who you are, the ugly truth of who you are, and yet at the same time being found through the Lord Jesus, being loved and delighted in and forgiven and changed, of course changed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it shapes us, changes us. Lord, would you help us to take to heart this psalm? Would you minister to us, not just now by it, but would you minister to us uh, the rest of this day and week where we pray? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.